Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. And we are so grateful that you've tuned in. We're a podcast that seeks to pursue in-depth discussions about biblical studies and theology and uh, the intersection between the two of them. And so we're a collective of biblical scholars and theologians working together toward that common goal. Uh, Thanks so much to all of you who support us and listen regularly. We really appreciate that. I always like hearing from those of you who listen. And if you want to share the word on social media, you can do so. Uh, But word of mouth is always best. A personal recommendation, perhaps in a handwritten card, is the way to go. I think it's the way of the future. So um, without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to OnScript. I'm uh, co-host Drew Johnson, along with all those other people who now co-host with us. Uh, And I'm here today with Dr. Christian Eberhardt, who is a professor of religious studies at the University of Houston. He graduated from Harvard Divinity School and has a doctorate in Hebrew Bible from the University of Heidelberg, as well as his second doctorate, his uh, habitation. Sorry, habi. (laughs) Can you say that for me? Habilitation. Habilitation. Yeah. um, So I practiced that, actually, so I wouldn't sound silly saying German, but here we are. (laughs) Uh, And that is not in Hebrew Bible. It's in early Christian literature from the University of Mainz. Uh, Dr. Eberhardt is a seminar founder and convener for the Society for New Testament Studies. He's written and edited many books and articles, including the second edition of one of my most favorite little books that we're going to talk about today, The Sacrifice of Jesus. Understanding Atonement Biblically. Well, welcome, Dr. Christian Eberhardt. Thanks for the introductions, and thanks for having me on your podcast. So your research has uh, taken a very definitive direction, uh, at least since I've been following you, and that's in ritual studies. And you started in Hebrew Bible, worked in early Christian literature. What attracted you to ritual studies, or how did you go down this path? Well, I indeed had a number of choices uh, for doctoral work, um, and they included some very kind of special topics that nobody would ever care about. But uh, and then at some point, it was proposed to me to work on something uh, which both scholarship and the church were grappling with. And I was like, well, what would that be? And the answer was, well, atonement, sacrifice, everybody in the church, I mean, everybody, a lot of people, and of course, more so on on specific seasons, uh, call it Good Friday, Easter, talk about the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, There's a lot of talk about uh, atonement or expiation, uh, and a lot of scholarship is actually done on these topics, but there seems to be a certain problem, and, and, uh, you know, if anybody is ever willing to uh, to study this problem seriously, uh, to grapple with it, and maybe come to a different uh, conclusion than those conclusions that have been uh, brought, brought before, uh, that would be a major contribution. So that's kind of uh, was the uh, initial thing that got me going on this particular topic. 
And since you written this little book, you'd already had a lot of work out when this uh, this time. And I'm calling it a little book because I think it's about a hundred pages of of writing or so. It's uh, it's what I would consider a down and dirty. Hits the topic hard, and it's very clean. It's very well written. So this is the first my first introduction uh, into your to your work, which caused me to go back and look at your more formal work. Much of it was in German, and thankfully has uh, some more has come out in English. But since you initially started working on this, there's been a lot written on atonement, uh, especially in Christian theology. In fact, there's been kind of a craze of atonement in Christian philosophical theology. And I wonder, do you feel like, I don't know if you've seen any of that work, or do you feel like it's paying attention to the right things that you've highlighted in your books? Well, some of it, I would say, does, uh, but then other books don't really. Um, When I embarked on this scholarly journey, it became clear to me that really the the major focus, uh, if you want to successfully um, explore uh, the area, the the major piece of work that has to be done is in fact on the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Uh, And if you look at the book Sacrifice of Jesus, it sounds like it's, you know, a big New Testament book, but the majority of it is for very good reason is dedicated to a study of uh, sacrificial rituals in, in Second Temple Judaism, so that means in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, that is the solution to the problem. Uh, there's a lot of study in New Testament, systematics, and wherever, where people just very uncritically take the term sacrifice and pretend that it's all clear what that means and then go ahead and, and write big, important books. Um, uh, but there's one thing about academics is that we should uh, critically reflect on the terminology uh, that we use, by the way, also on, on the methodology. Uh, so you always have to do that in a critically reflected way. Uh, and, and, and so in this case, you know, both sacrifice and atonement are the, the typical terms which you better use and then put a footnote or parenthesis or write a chapter. You know, what do I actually mean with that? What is sacrifice? What is atonement? And so, yeah, and even the name of the book is mildly ironic because, as you note in the book, the term sacrifice in the New Testament, at least, uh, is not applied to Jesus, uh, or it's only applied very selectively. I can imagine, though, when when you, you know, as you were working out these details of this argument and you were saying simple facts that you were finding, like the, the term thusias, that it, it's actually never used to describe Jesus's death. Uh, I remember when the first time I read that, I thought, well, that can't be right. <laughs> and I went and started going through databases and saying, like, this can't be true, looking it up. And I was I was actually somewhat shocked myself. So I wonder, did you get a lot of pushback uh, initially from people on that? Uh, people doubting uh, the thesis in general? Yes. And the pushback is also very indicative of where things go. I found that my scholarship is... is uh, very well, I would say, respected uh, in the area of biblical studies and particularly Old Testament Hebrew Bible studies, where people really know the text. So I think I have pretty much little problem. I should never say as a scholar, no problems, but you know, uh, a lot of acceptance among people, uh, especially those who study the text. Uh, so you know, I'm thinking about people who actually, for instance, write commentaries on the book of Leviticus and Leviticus for the audience that doesn't quite know these things. Leviticus is your behated, beloved book when it comes to uh, sacrifice and rituals, because uh, if if you're interested in sacrifice and sacrificial rituals, uh, you'll read Leviticus, but most Christians aren't. 
Okay, so that's why typically uh, when you look at, uh, at the lectionaries and which texts are used for, for sermons on Sundays, uh, try to find a, a sermon preached on, on Leviticus 1, the burnt offering, you just won't find it. Try to find one on the sin offering, Leviticus 4, you don't find it. See whether you ever find a confirmant whose confirmation, you know, biblical verse is like a, from the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, uh, that probably won't exist. Uh, we just, you know, naturally pick other texts. And, and so that all describes a little bit uh, of the problem. Um, we, uh, we tend to go elsewhere and, uh, yeah, and, and uh, so exploring the, these blind spots on the maps of, of uh, you know, where we typically go as church and as academy, uh, that uh, was a big goal for me in my own academic work. Yeah, so the big claim of this book, which we'll come back to later, is that um, first century Christians were basically just not referring to the violence of Jesus's death when they uh, when they thought about the sacrificial idol uh, or thought of it as a sacrifice. But before we get there, um, I have a larger question, and this is partly just your opinion and partly your research, is why would anybody ever associate violence with sacrifice? Uh, now, I, I know why uh, people, or I, I, I have some, my own suspicions, but is this a, the common hurdle that you had to overcome? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, uh, why would anybody associate violence with, with sacrifice? Let's first of all just uh, observe that we do that. Uh, I mean, look at the news, and, and there's a lot of violence, of course, uh, you know, when, when people die in warfare or die in accidents, uh, then we're very quick to resort to terminology drawn exactly from this area. Uh, so here is a soldier, and, and by the way, it's either just descriptive, so he became a victim of something, uh, uh, you know, but a victim could be a term associated to sacrifice, or especially if you want to give positive meaning out to the whole thing, you know, one is simply stating the facts, but the other is how do we overcome uh, uh, this tragic event? What kind of language can we employ to uh, help everybody involved uh, to uh, you know not with the trauma of, of this event and, and that's the moment uh, when everybody will uh, gratefully resort to the term sacrifice uh, you know uh, uh, generals will say it, uh, presidents of countries will say you know they at the moment the term sacrifice comes that seems to do the trick this soldier didn't die in vain it was a sacrifice and then you know there's all the glory attached to it so already you know just stating that we do this is important and of course, what it means, you know, sacrifice always is, oh, death occurs, it's tragic, and now we're putting, we're able to put a positive twist on it. That's what sacrifice is. So that's the interpretive lens or the terminolo terminological feeling that most, if not all people today, uh, uh, take when they look at either biblical text or simply hear, again, Easter, Good Friday, hear about the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay, so there's death and violence and tragic, and, and somehow we want to kind of spin this around and make it positive. So if you take that, um, and a lot of people have done it, uh, even in scholarship, uh, and then you, you you look at the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, um, uh, then, you know, you look at sacrificial rituals, you say this is sacrifice, and then, you know, uh, you're kind of hardwired to uh, simply bring those images in. It's all about blood, it's all about death. Uh, and, and, you know, we're making something which is actually quite bad, uh, positive. Uh, that then leads to something, you know, the people that were engaged there, and that's, by the way, let's call it the clergy of, of Israel, ancient Israel, or Second Temple Judaism, that makes the clergy basically 
murderers. Okay, there are scholars. Uh, I could rattle down the list of names, but you know, in the 70s and 80s, 1970s, 1980s, uh, for whose sacrifice is murder, is killing, is ritualized killing, uh, and that makes Jewish priests, uh, well, you know, complicit in, or actually that makes them first-degree murderers, right? Um, if, if only of animals, but uh, then, of course, sometimes, you know, there's even uh, sacrifices of humans. So, you know, uh, with that, things seem to be clear, except for that when you look at the text, and that's what I did, and, and you know, had to kind of empty my mind a little bit of these preconceived theories, uh, uh, suddenly you realize things aren't thus, uh, and in particularly, there are indeed types of sacrifice uh, where they these theories do not apply at all. And and where do they not apply at all? Well, for instance, you could sacrifice grain uh, at the temple. Okay, that was a big eye-opener for me. Uh, so wait a second, if sacrifice equals killing and violence, uh, but you're actually baking a pizza and bringing that to God and saying, you know, God, here's a piece for you, and the rest is actually for me and for the priest. I mean, that's basically dinner at my family, uh, once or twice a week, uh, you know, uh, killing, no, uh, violence, no, uh, you know, so what is it then? You know, that question remained open. And in fact, uh, there was, uh, I shouldn't say no, but there was basically extremely little scholarship dedicated uh, to this kind of uh, hole within the theoretical framework. Okay, uh, you know, tons of people writing about the one thing, uh, but then you look at uh, this grain offering, and for those who want to study that, you know, uh, that's in Leviticus chapter 2. Um, and of course, uh, this grain offering or called cereal offering, it also pops up elsewhere. But Leviticus 2 is your description. There has to be something different that occurred to me. You know, the more I studied it, there has to be a different uh, reading, a different understanding of sacrifice. Because otherwise, there is one type of sacrifice that completely does not fit at all our theoretical framework and you know then the, the the error must be on on the side of scholars yeah and it's it's worth mentioning the the language of sacrifice is used equivalently with animals and grain right so it's not like there's a different vocabulary exactly. around grain. they are both there's one uh, uh, umbrella term uh, so sacrifice yes is also a bit complicated because you know when when today in the modern western world we, we just say sacrifice and then maybe victim uh, uh, you know, and then how they relate, maybe we'll solve it later. But sacrifice is sacrifice is sacrifice. Hebrew Bible is different. There are two, three, maybe four umbrella terms. And then there is a particular term for every type of sacrifice. And I already mentioned earlier, for instance, there's the burnt offering, uh, uh, sin offering, and now this, uh, this well, uh, grain offering or cereal offering, Hebrew mincha, and this mincha, the grain offering, uh, yeah, again, it's just it's just grain, and and you bring it and a piece for God, and uh, and most of it then for for the priest. Uh, so how do we conceptualize this type of sacrifice? Uh, the umbrella terms, just quickly, uh, the most important would be uh, uh, korban, and korban actually just means to bring close, and that's always to the sanctuary or to God. Uh, so a korban is is kind of the major umbrella term, all these different types of sacrifice, burnt offering, cereal offering, communion sacrifice, sin offering, guilt offering, they are all equally considered korban, uh, ladunai, so, uh, uh, and I would translate korban as uh, offering or a gift. Yeah, or it's from karev, the, uh, the nearness bringing thing. Yeah. So, yes, I said, it, uh, the, the root, the Hebrew root really means a movement, a movement to uh, 
to the temple, to the sanctuary, or to God. Uh, and let's maybe just mention I'm in Jerusalem here right now, and so that will be just to the place over there uh, where uh, the Dome of the Rock is. So, you know, that's about a mile from where I'm currently sitting here. So, yeah, I'm interested. Um, you Were you raised in on a farm or in the city or somewhere in between? <laughs> I was raised in a village. Uh, in, or I should say, two villages outside of, of uh, the, the ne next major city would be Hanover with the soccer team that isn't very successful right now, or the second league. Um, so that's where I grew up in, in, a, yeah, in a village next to a mid-sized city, Hanover in northern Germany. So did you ever ex uh, hunt? Oh, I don't know if they hunt in Germany, but did you ever experience slaughtering animals or dealing with animals, uh, doing what we now consider part of sacrificial activity or were you, you, I was raised a city boy, but when I was in the military, you know, as a teenager, I finally for the first time participated in some uh, animal slaughtering when I was on an island in the Caribbean. Um, and that that's where I, my eyes were a little bit open to the fact that, oh, okay, there, this, you're, you are killing an animal for lack of a better English term, but it's, right. but nobody seemed to have violent intents. It didn't feel violent, uh, especially because right. you were eating the animal later. So like violence, it was the first time that I felt like violence wasn't a part of what was happening. Hmm. To give you a clear and simple response, no, I mean, uh, uh, there weren't farms, at least in the second village, and uh, I didn't participate in that. But then there was an interesting moment in my life and already as a scholar, uh, which was, by the way, a book panel exactly about the book that we are currently discussing. So there was a book panel and, you know, it was all very scholarly with other scholars uh, from my institution and other institutions who I read the book and all asked their uh, uh, nicely uh, framed uh, scholarly questions. Uh, but at the end of the presentation, the thing was pretty much done. And for me, it was already a done deal. Okay, now let's go get some coffee. But there was, in fact, a sheep farmer from a sheep farm in Canada who, as I found out later, was himself a Mennonite pastor. And uh, he then suddenly asked, started to ask me two, three critical questions. And, and that was actually when I'd ever attended uh, the slaughtering of sheep, since I'm writing about that in my book. And basically, did I ever have any, any first-hand knowledge? And uh, I then said, no, actually, not really. Uh, and long story short is that he then pretty much challenged me, you know, to, to come out to his sheep farm when it was the time uh, for the slaughter of sheep. And that was, by the way, a Muslim festival uh, that was Eid al-Hadra, which is pretty much an equivalent of um, the Passover in, in the Hebrew Bible. So Islam still celebrates that, uh, again, Eid al-Hadra. So, and I had to debate it with my family because, of course, gore and blood involved and uh, we ended up that we decided the kids stay at home my wife and i went and then saw how animals were being slaughtered and i prepared ritual ritually for the the, the celebration you know and again that's all according to certain uh, muslim traditions and so uh, that was very interesting uh, and, and by the way uh, the farmer and, and we became good friends over this uh, and it was yeah, an impressive experience. But again, you know, I, I concur with you. Uh, there wasn't violence involved. It's actually the opposite. Uh, the, the, uh, and you learn, uh, if you live in these kind of cultures, uh, you learn how to, how to do this, how to do the slaughtering. And the goal is always to make this as little violent indeed, uh, and basically as quick as possible. It seems to be a necessary thing that you have to slaughter an animal, but all attempts are put in place uh, to make this as little violent as you possibly can 
for the animal. So it's not about violence. It's, if anything, to prevent violence. Uh, yeah, I, I, when I was writing my book on ritual, uh, at, I was in Jerusalem as well. And uh, me and a buddy went up to uh, Mount Gerizim and watched the Pesach uh, sacrifice of the Samaritans. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, and that was another interesting moment where he was Brazilian. He said, this is barbecue. This is literally what we do <laughs> when oh, we yes. have a barbecue. Uh, and that I, I, it was another one of those paradigm shifts in my head. So. And, and yes, I've also you know looked at, at uh, the Passover of uh, the Samaritans, and uh, and then barbecue is another important term. So you know while we're discussing, maybe we get to that. But um, uh, let me just say that I once had a teaching assistant who, when I teach uh, sacrificial rituals in classroom, he had the nice idea uh, to bring actually a little barbecue device into the classroom, and literally while I was saying. And now comes the big solution that I'm offering. You know, actually, sacrifice isn't about killing. That's one end of the sacrificial ritual. But you actually just need to keep reading, keep reading until the end of it, because at the end, there's something very different. At the end, there's burning the sacrificial rituals. And finally, I can say, you know, even the pizza offering, even the grain offering, uh, the mincha, that is being burned. You don't kill it, but you burn it on in the altar of fire. Um, and all of that, by the way, then is... If you want to compare it to anything uh, in our modern culture, that would be your barbecue. And again, interesting because lots of scholars uh, would say, well, there's an incredible stench of, 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 of burnt meat. Gee, I mean, if you smell that your barber, your neighbor is doing the barbecue, uh, you know, you're almost, you have to fight not running there, right? I mean, we all know that uh, this instinct, uh, this, this response to the smell of barbecue. Uh, the place was basically, there was a barbecue place. The, the, the temple, sorry, the temple was a barbecue place. And anybody who barbecues knows that the fatty portions of the meat smell the best as they rise as well. So that is another thing, exactly. And so that's another thing where our modern culture has a hard time uh, reading or understanding uh, Hebrew Bible sacrifice appropriately. You know, all well, God gets the fat of most of these sacrifices. In the burnt offering, everything is. God, except for the height, but of uh, most of the other animal sacrifices, only the fat goes, and then it's often presented as if that was cheating. Oh, God just gets the crap, basically. I mean, who's oh, yeah. in the fat in the first place. I once had an interesting challenge because I had to write uh, an encyclopedia article on the term fat. I was like, what? What do I write about this? And at the <laughs> same time, I was like, well, they know exactly why they came to me because I've actually written about this in my research and if anything validated that, but still I felt you know, that was kind of a waste of time and you know, I'm done uh, in 15 minutes writing two sentences. The thing became, however, quite long uh, <laughs> because suddenly you realize that fat right. is a term uh, that typically desi uh, yeah, designs or designates, conveys the best, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, this is kind of the best, uh, the, the filet today, we would say the filet piece. Um, and you know, and then think bacon. Bacon is is probably fifty percent uh, fat. Uh, if you're in a French culture, think magret de canard. Magret de canard is a big piece of of duck, but usually with a finger right, piece right. Of, of fat underneath. And when you see that for the first time, you know, I was like, well, I'm not going to eat that. And then we actually eat it, and, and the fat is the most delicious part. Uh, these are some aspects uh, that you need to kind of uh, understand. These are some hurdles you have to overcome in order to. Uh, better conceptualize uh, what's going on in those sacrificial rituals. Yeah, and even if you're thinking about agrarian subsistence folks who are desperately seeking calories, handing over the fattiest portion right. is a sacrifice. That is really where uh, fat is actually 
for for populations that are close to starving, not overweight, uh, but close to starving. Uh, you know, that's where you want to uh, where you want to focus on, and you can prepare animals so that uh, the fat is, is eaten properly. And by the way, uh, talk about that. Uh, First Nations uh, or Native American cultures, uh, you know, they ate the entire buffalo um, in the plains. Uh, tribes uh, they didn't just go for the for the meat of the animal uh, they ate and, and utilized everything but of course also the fat and there's probably a lot of fat on a buffalo you can skip this question if you like but i i often wonder how much damage Rene girard uh did in this discussion going back to the violence issue um uh, and I don't maybe know if Gerard is the only one, but uh, Gerard seems to be the one that everybody points to favorably. Right. And I, I feel like he really misses the boat on the violence issue, or I should say he really injects violence into the system. He does, uh, yes. Uh, René Gerard uh, and another uh, scholar, Walter Burkert, uh, they both offer different theories of sacrifice but they both uh, the climax in both theories the climax of sacrifice is both that they focus on on killing walter burger published his one of his major works in this area under the latin title homo necans homo necans uh, is in english uh, the killing human so it's a study of sacrifice and again you know uh, what does it mean about human culture and he studies greek uh, actually, not not uh, Semitic or Hebrew or or biblical, but primarily Greek sacrificial rituals. And his conclusion is that uh, because humans sacrifice, they are killing humans. And again, that's where we were at the beginning. Uh, sacrifice then equals killing. Uh, René Girard uh, has a very similar conclusion. Uh, again, uh, sacrifice is in the first place uh, killing. Uh, but he will, if you look at the text, pretty much not study rituals of sacrifice in the Hebrew Bible at all. Uh, he studies, if anything, uh, a different kind of cultural phenomena. Uh, and, and those are all things that I would call scapegoat rituals or elimination uh, rituals or so, which exist, by the way, in all uh, human cultures. And by the way, there I would uh, fully agree with Girard. Uh, I, I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with Girard. I think that he is perfectly right on when he describes the evil uh, corporate intentions in humanity, where they always single out uh, the weak and, and the marginalized groups, and then you know kind of use them as scapegoats. And I would even say that that probably applies to uh, world politics. Uh, you know, people who uh, who just randomly wage war today. Uh, you know, use René Girard for that, and, and you get the explanation uh, for for those evil inclinations of humanity. However. The question is, what kind of language do we apply to describe these inclinations? And now there, that's where I disagree with Shujaar, because suddenly he comes in and says, well, that's all sacrifice because it's all killing. So that's, again, this initial reflex, uh, and he uncritically uh, deploys this term uh, and, and, you know, really has, has left a, a massive uh, stain on or has had a massive influence on, again, uh, scholarship uh, around the term sacrifice because everybody... Uh, you know, whether it's popular uh, employment or whether it's scholars like Burkhardt or Girard or many others, you know, they all say, well, so, yeah, here we go. We know exactly what sacrifice is. But again, uh, uh, Burkhardt studies uh, sacrificial rituals elsewhere, and Girard doesn't sac study sacrifice, sacrificial rituals at all. They all uh, fill basically their their terminological uh, uh, canisters with the stuff from elsewhere and then apply it uncritically to sacrificial rituals and that is not what we should do we should study as 
conscious scholars these texts uh, unto themselves, and that's what I've been trying to do. Yeah, that's that's a really good distinction. Every time I teach Leviticus, I get about one week a semester with freshmen, and I have to teach Leviticus. Every time we go through chapters one through six, the question is, well, what's the point of these rituals? What do, what's the purpose? What do they do, right? And so uh, you and I probably have uh, lots of different ideas floating in our heads about what we think they do. Um, but maybe we should start with what have people said about what these different sacrifices do? What do they accomplish? How do they work? What are, what are the main categories? Okay, uh, so you mean that I talk about what people say, and therefore, yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. And, and of course, Christians typically don't quite know what to say about it, or right. what those rituals really are about. Because I mean, the, the first answer is, uh, and I find it always interesting when you go to a scholarly library um, and you look at the at the shelves um, where the commentary series are, and I have to explain maybe to some folks, you know, that a commentary series is where one scholar. Uh, scholar A writes one book about one book of the Bible, uh, explaining it, sometimes uh, chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse, sometimes word by word. So these books can be really thick. And uh, those commentary series are being commissioned regularly. And then scholars uh, take on this immense task. Now, it's always interesting to see, uh, by the way, uh, which volumes are being written first and which ones are last. Mm. Because, of course, it takes sometimes years, if not decades, if not sometimes half a century, for these commentary series to be complete. And the answer is simple. You know, if it's a Christian commentary series, the first volumes will be written on Genesis and Isaiah and Matthew and, you know, the, I mean, the four Gospels and uh, Pauline writings, particularly Romans. Well, Galatians first because it's shorter. Romans always right. takes a longer. And the Psalms, you know, okay, so far so good. And at the other end of the spectrum, which commentaries will be the last and where's always a whole uh, and if you want answers on those things, uh, you, you don't find them, at least not in commentary series. Well, here you go, Leviticus, uh, you know, and of course other books. But I mean, Leviticus would be first and foremost among those neglected books. If you go to uh, uh, to Jewish studies and or what what uh, what Jewish scholars are fascinated about, you'll actually see the opposite, that uh, Leviticus then is actually a point of interest. And one of the thickest uh, commentary contributions was therefore penned by uh, by the MNN scholar and rabbi <coughs> Jacob Milgram, who wrote uh, three massive uh, commentary uh, volumes in the series Anger Bible uh, about Leviticus. Uh, and by the way, who also came late in his life to Jerusalem. Um, so, uh, you know, there the thing is different. Um, Leviticus is suddenly the focus of attention. And by the way, what I said, uh, you can also do this, uh, run the same thing if you look at children's Bibles. Uh, children's Bibles are just uh, the same thing, uh, like commentary series. If you take a, a Christian children's Bible with nice illustrations, you know, who really want to give you the one through the Old Testament story, say, on 10 or 15 pages. Of course, there's the creation, there's the flood, you know, there's the... I mean, Abraham and all the other guys, and, and of course the Exodus from, from Exodus from Egypt. And then you're really lucky if you find any reference to you know the fact that there was a sanctuary built. And then actually the book of Exodus, which really starts with the Exodus from Egypt, but that the, the mass of it is actually about the building of the tabernacle tank of the sanctuary of Israel. And that that's then only the, the prelude to the book the book of Leviticus with its sacrificial rituals. You know, I mean, then again, back to the children's Bible, you know, long story, they get out of uh, out of Egypt, Israel is saved uh, and all these things. And then quickly, okay, well, here's maybe a little picture of the sanctuary, the tabernacle tent. 
okay, we, we gloss over uh, those sacrificial rituals, and then, you know, we're already, well, they're getting into the promised land, right? I mean, that's typically how children's Bible uh, kind of uh, shorten down, truncate uh, this history. So, I mean, you see uh, the, the focus of interest and, and uh, again, the, the, how, how the perceptions are very different uh, between uh, the Christian culture and, and the Jewish culture. Yeah. So when I ask my 18-year-old my students, you know, the ones that are Christian or have read the Bible before, you know, so what, what is the point of all of this ritual in Leviticus? Number one answer they give me, and, and if you push them, they don't really have much behind it, but they, they'll just say, well, it's hygiene because these are the disease-bearing animals, and uh, these are the clean ones, and God's trying to separate everything. Like, okay, well, that's actually not true. You know, cows can carry just as many diseases as pigs, but but they don't really have any. They don't have any way of dividing up the the, the division of labor of ritual. Like, they're like, I don't know. They just had to do these things to show that they were devoted to God. I'm like, well, okay, that's true. But what did they think they were doing? And so. Because I think this is really important for the claim you make later in the book about what what do what does the early church think Jesus's sacrifice adds up to? What does it do uh, in atonement? So, what do people suppose in all of those commentaries about what is, what these rituals do for Israel? Right. So that's where now we enter into the the realm of of the interpretive side of things. So you can study uh, those. Uh, sacrifices with regards to just how the elements of, of their rituals, uh, you know, there's this to be done and that to be done, and they're very detailed descriptions. Uh, but then, uh, besides just uh, straightforward, do this, do that, do that, there's also an interpretive side. And uh, yes, indeed, uh, these uh, sacrificial rituals will say uh, something about how about the intention of sacrifices. And there's about three, four terms that will regularly come. Uh, you know, one is that things will make the offerer, the human being, pleasing to God. Uh, the Hebrew term for that is ratzon. So, I mean, that will bring about uh, delight, uh, we could also say, uh, with God. Um, and then another critical term is that uh, sacrifices may atone. Um, Hebrew kipher, um, the term atone can also sometimes be, depending on the Bible you're using, can be called, uh, translated uh, to expiate or to propitiate. I think more recent Bible translations uh, have a tendency to rather employ the term atone, uh, older ones more to expiate. And again, that's typically been the focus of much of the scholarship, uh, you know, sacrifices and are about atonement. So far, so good. But again, if you keep reading, if you keep reading at the other end, uh, there's now usually a very lengthy portion about, uh, about preparing uh, the, the burning of the, of the material animal or grain, and then actually doing that. And then you get uh, some more interpretive terminology, and that is that all of this happens for the now pleasing or soothing smell for God. So there's an explicit reference to God in the whole thing. So the idea is, again, you know, and that's about the smell. It talks literally about the reach, uh, and that it's soothing, reach mechoach, ladonai. So, again, we said this earlier, but why is it pleasing or soothing? Well, because barbecue just smells good. Uh, it's not a theory, and that's just sticking your nose out when you're doing a hamburgers on the grill in the backyard. So that's what that's all about. Uh, and then there's a final interpretive term. Let me just throw that in here, and then we've covered it all. Uh, all those materials that are burned on the altar, regardless of the type of sacrifice, they all become ishe. And there's a scholarly dispute how we 
we translate Ishi, I would say that that's a fire offering because they all just become Ishi the moment they are burnt. Uh, so that means they basically dematerialize. Uh, and, and then you wonder, where do they go? Well, that's Ishi, you know, it's, it literally shrinks uh, in, in the fire in, in front of my eyes. Uh, and it basically goes into another realm of, of existence. And that's the realm of existence where God is and where the spirits are. So, you know, those are, that's the interpretive terminology in, 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 in sacrifice. And again, that's kind of stuff that is then being applied uh, also to uh, in New Testament texts and, and, of course, to the death of Jesus, but not exclusively. Yeah, and so under that regime, it sounds very transactional. So you have this problem in here, because I, th I think some people will say, well, isn't that every sacrificial system then? You have this problem, <clears throat> a sacrifice is invented, so let's say for the sociological models, these people invent right. a uh, sacrifice that solves the problem. And in this case, the problem is something has offended the God, and now you give, you give an offering to the God, and the God is now pleased, and the God no longer, no longer hates you. Uh, for a lot of people, that's going to sound very transactional and very um, angry father <laughs> okay. version of God, if you know what I'm saying. Right. Or a manipulative. Man. Yeah, manipulative. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. what we call magic in some way. It, it is a transactional logic. Um, and, and if you come to the Middle East, uh, much of you is transactional. I would say actually that human relations are transactional. Um, Yesterday, I crossed the, the old city and you walk through the souk. So the souk is the marketplace. Right. And basically, people are all, they're very friendly. They're looking at you friendly. But of course, they want uh, want your attention. What for? Well, for a, a transaction, right? I mean, you, you're supposed to buy something and then there's money exchange. And that's what that's all about. And in fact, much of human economy is about transaction. You, trans, uh, you, you exchange uh, goods uh, or services for money. Or, or goods for services, you know, and, and whatnot. And uh, so, I mean, those are very basic categories of human existence. Uh, and, and that's how, how human society has been existing. And, and so in a way, uh, the, the sacrificial cult at the temple uh, is part of that. Uh, we also see, therefore, uh, that, that's the reason why this terminology is readily and easily applied in other areas uh, of uh, of human culture. Uh, it's it's not an exception. It's actually a rule because, uh, yeah, I mean, some of these terms can be used also for for, for, for monetary area. Basically, it's kind of uh, foundations of an ancient uh, banking system. So all of that kind of overlaps uh, at the temple. The temple uh, was, in fact, a little bit the treasury, the national treasury of uh, the country or the nation. Of, uh, of Israel and then in then Second Temple Judaism. So, do you see that as fundamentally a, a? It's an economic, but do you see it as a manipulative system? And in, in in the same vein, would you say Jesus Jesus sacrifice is part of that manipulation as well, or there's something more than transaction going on? I mean, everything can be uh, misunderstood and and can be used uh, for manipulative purposes. But I would say, in the first place, this is simply the, the cognitive or interpretive framework. Uh, that has been utilized. Um, and by the way, it wasn't the only source of, of, uh, of interpretive framework when it comes to uh, either the death of Jesus or, and now that's a bit broader, and please note the, the distinction, or why Jesus is the Savior. So to, uh, to convey this notion that here's Jesus, but we acknowledge him and worship him as the Savior, or again, or why in particular, then uh, the death of Jesus is a savings event. Uh, that's a bit the question, how we convey this or articulate it. 
uh, in a way that it it uh, it makes sense to people. Because if you let, let's just say that that's uh, kind of a fairly new thought, uh, you, you cannot say something which is new in language that has never existed. Because if you use, use language that never existed, it's like speaking, inventing your own language and, and trying to, to use that, uh, you know, in, in the United States or wherever in Germany or France, if you speak a different language, nobody will understand you. And, and so, which means, you, despite the fact that something is new, you actually want to use traditional uh, interpretive categories to convey what is new. And that's exactly what happened uh, in, in the case of Jesus uh, to, to convey uh, how he can be understood as savior. So, so speaking of the temple, um, you have a whole chapter called the geography of sacrifice. And I think for most people, if they haven't studied uh, ritual or Leviticus or just the Old Testament, they haven't spent enough time in it. If you ask them, where is the geography of sacrifice? They would say, oh, it's where the temple, you know, they have one answer, one idea, and it's basically everything happens at the temple. Um, but you kind of show there's a broader geography of sacrifice. Why is it important to understand more than just the temple or why sacrifice happens uh, up to the temple? Up to the temple. Well, I mean, um, if much of the, the misconception about sacrifice is that it's basically uh, just a second when you kill somebody, uh, then for me, the task to counteract, uh, to prove this falls into propose an alternative was actually to show uh, what sacrifice really is. And, and, and for that, um, the, the space of sacrifice became important because that is, in fact, the place which you approach. So uh, I said earlier that the, the, uh, one of the umbrella terms, a summary term in Hebrew uh, for sacrifice is korban, and that's built on the root of, of karaf, and that means to bring. Um, so there's constantly this language that you bring things close to the temple. Uh, uh, people, the ancient Israelites and, and Jews would embark on pilgrimages and would sometimes walk for days. So this, this approach to the temple was a thing that they physically did and it lasted days. Uh, it's like today going on a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, for instance. Uh, and it's usually a major experience in the lives of people. So that is really the whole thing. Uh, there's something else. Uh, then the temple wasn't some filthy uh, you know, execution place, um, uh, like you know, almost like a concentration camp. Uh, that's what all these connotations of killing and violence uh, would associate. Uh, you know, the temple is not a gas chamber uh, set up, but the temple was actually one of the, basically the epitome of beauty and aesthetic achievements um, uh, of, of Judaism. If you wanted to know what the best of Judaism was, you go to the temple because there's a beautiful uh, building, uh, especially under Herod when it was enlarged and, and you know, adorned with gold and stuff. Uh, that was actually uh, what uh, what Judaism was all about, and that was the pride of Second Temple Judaism, which is also what we call a Second Temple Judaism after that temple. So, you know, just uh, describing the temple in its beauty uh, and how it was refurbished for 80 years uh, with, with thousands of workers and, and lots of, you know, that cost a lot of money, but it was a, a very, uh, I think, worthwhile investment uh, in, the, in the opinion of, of, of Second, Second Temple Jews, because you know that was uh, their heart, uh, and and they did it willingly, and and so you know to kind of reframe uh, the understanding of sacrifice. That's why that's all important, um, and then also just to kind of uh, help people understand that really this this burning right that I'm focusing on, not exclusively, but I mean that's still one of the important uh, things that I think we need to understand that that really happens exactly at the geographic center or architectural center of, of this, this, uh, this space that's been created. 
Uh, and by the way, yes, animals have to be animals have to be killed, but that happens in the outskirts, and you know that's not there's not much language dedicated to that. Uh, but then you know the, the center of attention is really at the center is this this burning ritual, uh, this kind of barbecue. Yeah, that's why I thought that was important, and you know, uh, and, and included some images in yeah. the book as well. That's very helpful. I. It makes one wonder then when we come to Jesus as a sacrifice. So if you want to think of him as a sin, I, I think about this all the time. The sin sacrifice, uh, which some people might want to portray him as, nobody ever lays their hand on him. Like So nobody does the samach, you know, where you lay your hand and you confess your sins. Uh, and there's no burning, right? So like there seems to be this... There's not a direct connection, at least in any right. kind of tangential or sorry, uh, tangible way between actual death of Jesus, the way it happened, and the way sacrifices roll out in the temple. So in what ways would you say the New Testament authors are conceiving of Jesus as a sacrifice? Well, you mentioned already that the first thing is uh, we hear this all the time. Uh, the New Testament talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. And then you look at the Gospels and then uh, now, you know, we have to be careful uh, let's look for where the term sacrifice, really that term sacrifice, is applied to Jesus, and, and pretty much the result is it's not. But of course, sacrifice is more than just the term sacrifice, uh, which, by the way, in Greek is thusia. Uh, sacrifice is also where we talk about blood. Sacrifice is uh, where we use other uh, language, such as, and we just talked about it, such as atonement. You know, isn't atonement also a reference to sacrifice, since atonement is an interpretive term out of sacrificial rituals? And of course it is. So my response uh, would be, after we said already, the term sacrifice, to see a Greek, uh, is not being used in the context of, of the Gospels uh, uh, in, in the language about Jesus, but what does it show up uh, will be the term uh, Heima, uh, Greek Heima, which is blood. Uh, or if we also look at the, the uh, Christology or soteriology of Paul, Paul will sometimes, uh, not hugely often, but nevertheless, will talk about uh, blood um, and interpret this differently. And I think that comes in uh, precisely because of uh, the Last Supper or Lord's Supper or Eucharist. Now there are different terms uh, about this uh, little meal that Jesus had uh, the, the, before his passing for the crucifixion um, and it's iconic and everybody knows uh, he had some bread uh, and said words of institution and then there was a cup of wine and jesus again says words of institution and that's where we have a reference to uh, to blood uh, and i think that's exactly now the, the connection uh, that's what new testament authors and, and uh, the early christians by the way we have to be careful also they were jews okay uh, they were jews who read their Jewish scriptures um, and, and, you know, then try to make sense of what happened to a Jewish Messiah. When they did that, you know, they used that terminology and, and, and understood, and I would actually say Jesus did too, understood the term blood in reference to sacrificial rituals uh, found in the Torah. Uh, so that's where, where I think the whole thing was born. And from there, that's at the earliest stages, and then uh, the whole thing evolves. And then Paul, writing in, in the mid-50s, for instance, uh, in, in Romans, uh, will also use uh, terminology like, like atonement. So Jesus was a place of atonement in Romans chapter 3. Uh, by the way, uh, NRSV translates incorrectly. NRSV writes uh, Jesus was a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, that is actually 
incorrect because uh, the Greek term there is hilasterion, and hilasterion does exist in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible or the Testament, uh, but it never means sacrifice of atonement. And for the simple reason that actually in the Old Testament, there isn't even a sacrifice of atonement. That's a category which is simply not existent. So, but then again, hilasterion is a term that is being applied, and it actually refers to uh, the Ark of the Covenant and to the cover is a kind of a wrong term because it's it's really right. uh, it's being translated as mercy seat well it's the place of atonement uh, luther says it's the mercy seat um, and really the ark as such is really the just the carrying device of uh, the actual you know cult piece and, and the actual thing is really this gold slab uh, and that's the hilasterio so that's what paul brings in paul says jesus uh, is like this a golden cold, uh, a cold uh, device, uh, this gold slab. Uh, and that's been the place upon which, according to uh, the Torah, atonement was done. And by the way, atonement was done in order to, uh, to purge uh, the sins and impurities uh, of uh, Israel uh, from the land. So that is kind of being collapsed, that imagery. Right. And that's uh, how Paul uh, presents uh, the death of Jesus. In, in, in Romans, for instance. Yeah, and interestingly, it's bringing you into the scene and the, into the Holy of Holies, not out by the altar and by the slaughtering event, right? Uh, You're right at the center of sanctity. Exactly. I'm tempted, uh, I want to do the speed round, but I really, I have, I'll, I'll include this as a speed round question. So speed round questions are, you can give simple, short answers, um, and, you, and you don't have to explain anything. You can just uh, answer. Uh, so this one you can, I'll give you a simple answer. Do you fall, uh, in the question of the garden at Eden, was it a temple or not a temple for you? Uh, in a way, yes, because it's about the proximity of God. Uh, obviously there's no temple building, but you could understand the temple later as, you know, trying to recreate paradise okay. proximity with God. Yes. That's a great, great answer. I, <laughs> because I agree with that. Uh, uh, what biblical or theological work has the greatest impact on you as a thinker? <laughs> uh, well, let's maybe for the moment focus on, on you know, the topic of, of this podcast, but I would say very formative uh, were uh, a few books or people, and, and certainly among them would be Jacob Milgram, uh, whom I mentioned already, uh, eminent uh, scholar, rabbi, uh, he was from California, um, and then he wrote the Leviticus commentary. Uh, and then... Uh, another scholar from the University of Strasbourg, that's Alfred Marx, uh, who has also written on, 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 on sacrifice uh, and, and theories of sacrifice, and is currently penning uh, a Leviticus commentary as we're speaking. Um, and uh, so I was not the person to invent uh, this kind of, uh, I mean, Marx is, is one of the few, if not the only, who's actually dedicated any kind of scholarly effort to the, the serial offering, Leviticus too. So, you know, that kind of, so I, I wasn't alone there, at least. Um, and, and we've met already before I published my doctorate and, uh, you know, kind of talked about this. So I think uh, those two, among many others, and, you know, I apologize for leaving out other important names, but they were certainly kind of critical to what, uh, where I'm and what I've, what I've written. Excellent. So you live in Houston, at least part of your life. And so here's a test of how much you know Americana poetry. If I say to you... Jimmy cracked corn. How do you feel about that? Jimmy cracked corn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you know this poem? Uh, no. Okay. 
then you would have no feeling. The correct answer was that's only from the from the Gettysburg's Edward. <laughs> it's uh the correct answer is I don't care. Uh, that's the uh, but that's okay. It's okay. Okay. Um, if you hadn't become a biblical scholar, what do you think you would be doing with your life? Well, you're asking that a, a former retired banker uh, ah. was seriously considering becoming either a musician uh, or a tennis professional. And uh, so I was debating those questions and, uh, you know, maybe <laughs> I would have tried Wimbledon at some point, but uh, I decided not to just because I didn't want to retire in the mid thirties or so. Yeah. Excellent. Well, well speaking of that, um, what is your favorite band and why is the, is it the Eberhardt trio in the basement? And gee, how do you find out? About that? <laughs> <laughs> I should, I should note that basement is spelled B A S S M E N T. Okay, yes, uh, that's where my family band uh, performed in, in Canada. That's a, that's a cool little club. Uh, so much for the FBI spying behind me. Um, okay, so in the interest of full disclosure, uh, my wife uh, studied opera singing and has done a lot of performance. Uh, my wow. son currently studies uh, violin and composition. Um, and uh, so and our younger son also played an instrument and, and uh, well i'm on several instruments but usually i guess what you're referring to i've been on the piano but then uh, some of the pieces uh, we're playing are arranged by myself some are actually composed by myself um, so i do compose on the side yeah so what kind uh, of music well not sonatas uh, not symphonies but um, popular songs sometimes kind of uh, i mean church is not the right term but um, well, you asked about the preferred music and or the preferred band, and, and gee, what would I say? I mean, I could just you know look at my my uh, YouTube tabs here, and, and that would be Queen, and it would be Mike Oldfield. Uh, don't know whether Americans still remember Mike Oldfield, but um, uh, you know, I and if I sit down and if I find a grand piano, uh, then I probably play whatever We Are the Champions or Oh, nice. Uh, and that being said, I had a classical uh, classical piano training, so I can still play you know some of the the old things and, and enjoy that but um, then i just you know try to do my own thing and uh, why not sounds like fun what troubles you most about the bible like w within the bible itself what gives you trouble <laughs> uh, the bible is a very frank book it doesn't glorify humanity or human culture so you have a lot of um, um you know um troublesome text um, um, and I don't want to say that it's all the fault of the God of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible um, because that would be somewhat unfair um, uh, but uh, the, the, the Hebrew Bible does something which the New Testament doesn't do the Hebrew Bible is actually trying to provide a real uh, constitution almost a political constitution uh, for the for, for Israel and and, uh, and and second table Judaism the New Testament doesn't do that. The New Testament has agreed uh, that there isn't uh, no longer any option for, for political authority or autonomy for the simple reason that the Romans own the country. Uh, they're, uh, they're all under the hegemony of, of the Roman Empire. So there's no longer any much of a political option. And if it ever existed, then Jesus and Paul never thought they would be part of that. I mean, they were kind of looking for a spiritual realm. But that's different in uh, while, while much of uh, the literature of the second temple is also actually written in the exile and in, uh, but, but the vision was still to come back to the country and and, and 
you know, have a, a constitution in place if it wasn't indeed in the, the older uh, kind of traces of that political constitution. Why am I saying that? Because that also means uh, that two things have to be taken seriously. One is, you know, kind of a legal system with, with uh, things like punishing and then capital punishment. So uh, that's one thing. And the other is really seriously discuss uh, warfare and to what degree you can do it. And simply also descriptively that warfare happened because uh, there was this little tiny people surrounded by other superpowers and they had to defend themselves. And mostly, by the way, it went pretty, went pretty bad. And, and, and sometimes they were successful, you know, but in the ancient days, there was, sorry to say that, but happy slaughtering. Uh, in fact, for most of the history of, of, of humanity and the Roman Empire included, I mean, they just butchered each other uh, mercilessly. Uh, that's something which we have to acknowledge. Uh, and that went on right at the core of uh, of the power of uh, the Roman Empire, because uh, most emperors uh, did not die a natural death. I mean, if they weren't killed by, by uh, their entourage, uh, they decided quickly to commit suicide like Nero. Uh, it, it was not a particularly peaceful time back then and in that place of the world. Um, so that's uh, now, gee, you said speed answering and that I'm lecturing on, <laughs> no. on here. <clears throat> but I just want to say uh, that, you know, we have to keep all of that in, in mind as we're kind of yeah, doing this thing. So. Uh, that's good. Okay, this might be impossible, but um, can you give us a basic greeting, like a hello, in either the Oji Cree language or Lakota Sioux? Uh, in Lakota Sioux, how are you doing? Okay, we won't explain how you knew that. <laughs> no, how did you? I, I noticed that you listed uh, these uh, First Nation languages uh, on your LinkedIn, and I'm interested to know uh, why you spent any time uh, learning those languages. Well, I think it's just very important to know about the history in the United States because it's not just 100 years like in Texas or 300 years, but it goes on. And everybody should know people like Totonka Yotake, right? You know, Sitting Bull, Totonka Yotake. And it's not just about, you know, dances with wolves, but, uh, you know, there are other real people and and studying real history uh, puts you in touch with the real world. Um, Hollywood is, is, you know, just way too much uh, just fantasy and propaganda. Uh, and I prefer to study the real world. Hmm. Yeah, well, I grew up in Oklahoma, so we uh, uh, Native American oh, history was was part of Oklahoma history, which I really appreciated. Um, well, Dr. Christian Eberhard, it's been a joy to meet you finally and uh, to hear you talk through these issues of ritual. And thank you so much for your time. Well, Drew, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your questions and all the best. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.